Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Hey, wherever you are, 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm starting a new sermon series today entitled Faith Through the Fire, Living for Christ in a Hostile Culture. Now, let me tell you a little bit about 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written by Peter to a group of believers that were being persecuted by their culture for their Christian faith. And I'm going to tell you more about that in just a moment. But I want us to go through this entire book this summer. Uh, It'll probably be about 10 sermons altogether, where I want to show us what Peter would say to us, where when we, our faith is under fire from a hostile culture. Now you say, preacher, is our faith under fire? If you haven't figured that out yet, you are not paying attention. Our faith is under fire. As a matter of fact, I can throw this up here. How many of you uh, have heard about the Target incident this week? You heard about that? It is unbelievable. As Christians, we typically want to go about our lives. Paul said for us to pray, respect the government so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. That's what we as Christians want to do. We just want to be left alone. Let us practice our faith. Let us share our faith. But we're living in a culture that is hostile to us even doing that. Now, this is a screenshot of Reuters News. And I want to read for you how Reuters News uh, framed this conversation with Target this week. Here's what they said. I quote, This year, however... Those pride displays have become a flashpoint for right-wing conservatives and radical Christians. Stop right there. Right-wing conservatives and radical Christians. Now, can I tell you this? The world we live in, the only kind of conservative they know is a right-wing conservative. Here's what they mean by that. If you don't kowtow and agree with them, you're crazy. Now, the only kind of Christian they know is a radical Christian. If you believe the Bible, if you agree with the morality and standards of this Bible, you are a radical Christian. Not just a Christian, you are a radical Christian. And so now they're saying, well, we've called for the boycott of uh, Target. And we did. Thank you. We called for the boycott of Target uh, after we called for the boycott of Bud Light. Now, we shouldn't have been drinking Bud Light, but I'm boycotting it anyway. I don't drink it, but I boycotted it. Anyway, I don't drink any beer, by the way, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic. Listen to last week's sermon. Uh, uh, but against it, but now, now we're, we're boycotting Target. Should we do that? Yeah, we should. We absolutely should. Because listen to this. Again, this is Reuters. This is not the radical Christian right who's saying this. This is Reuters. Here's what Reuters said. I want to read it to you. Target is offering more than 2,000 products 
including clothing, books, music, and home furnishings as part of their pride collection. The items include tuck-friendly swimsuits. If you're like me, I'm naive enough I had to go, what? It's not part of my everyday vernacular. And if you don't know what that is, look it up when you go home. But I, I quote, gender fluid mugs, queer all year calendars. Now, listen, let me read to you. This is sad. And Reuters writes this like it's normal. And books for children age two to eight. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. We're talking about books geared to two-year-olds, two-year-olds, with the title, Bye Bye Binary, Pride One Two Three, and I'm Not a Girl. There is no two to eight-year-old that could understand that without a parent shoving it down their throat. Y'all all right? It's Memorial Day weekend. I just need to make sure you're okay. I hadn't even started preaching yet. All this is introduction. I'm just, I'm just, uh, Target hired somebody by the name of Eric Carnell, an outspoken homosexual Satanist, an outspoken homosexual Satanist to design a line of pride products. Carnell, the transgender designer behind the brand, explained it in an Instagram post that Satan represents passion, pride, and liberty and loves all LGBTQ plus people. Let me read for you the exact quote on his Instagram page. Satanists don't really believe in Satan. Huh. He is merely used as a symbol, listen to this, symbol, Satan, of passion, pride, and liberty. He means to you what you need him to mean. So for me, Satan is hope, compassion, equality, and love. So naturally, Satan respects pronouns. He loves LGBTQ plus people. And I went with a variation of Baphomet. Now, I had to look up what in the world was Baphomet. I, I didn't understand what it was. Let me show you a picture of Baphomet. He used this depiction of a demon that has been around for hundreds of years. uh, Often it is a depiction of Satan himself, and he designed a line of pride products based on this demon, but yet he says, it's not real. Can I just tell you this? Hey, pay attention. He may not think it's real, but Satan is very real. And he's using this, this boy as an instrument of evil to pull out. And so Target hired a guy that was going to use this as his inspiration. He said about Baphomet, a deity, a deity, a deity, a God, who himself is a mixture of genders, beings, ideas, and existences. They reject binary stereotypes and expectations. Perfect, he said. Perfect. Is our faith under fire? 
Our faith is under fire. If you believe the Bible, you're a radical Christian. If you believe in what, by the way, half of what is in a Target store was illegal 10 years ago and is still illegal in some states. But yet, you're a bigot if you believe in the God and the morality of this book, you're the problem. You're the problem, according to our culture. So that's the culture we live in. It's not far different than the culture Peter wrote to in 1 Peter chapter 1. So hold your place in your Bible. All uh, oh, that was free. That, that was an extra page in my notes. I didn't even start preaching yet. How do we engage a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity and Christian values? We've got to know how to respond and navigate our culture. Now, there are several theories in Christianity, and I don't want to wade too deeply into this, but there's several theories in Christianity on how Christians are to engage the culture, and they have big words associated with them. I'm just going to put up easy-to-understand language up here. Uh, there are three ways. Number one, uh, there are those that teach we should disengage from the culture. That is, we should re reject everything in our current culture. Basically, it's we should go full hermit mode, full cult mode. We should get away from the culture. We should ignore the culture. We should go live on a farm, uh, go full Amish, whatever you want to call it. Get away from the culture at all. Just disengage, live our own lives, stay away. Don't work where they work. Don't shop where they shop. Don't do what they do. Just get full hermit mode. But yet, when we see that in the Scripture, we don't really see God calling us to 100% disengage from the culture. Now, we're not supposed to do what they do, but we're supposed to be among the culture, but not like the culture, if I understand the Bible correctly. Well, no, there's a second idea about the culture, and that is Christians should embrace the culture. That is, we'd, we'd be just like them. We let culture interpret the text of the Scripture. So whatever culture says is right, you know what we do? We go find a Bible verse to back up what the culture wants to do. So when the culture wants to live immoral sexual lifestyles, and by the way, that covers a lot of things. When the culture wants to live an immoral sexual lifestyle, we just go find a verse that says God is love and God must love everybody no matter where they are or what they do. That is wrong. And by the way, there are preachers doing it by the droves right now. Andy Stanley has waited full in to embracing the culture. Let's just figure out whatever the culture wants to do, and we'll go, and we'll just be like them. We'll find a Bible verse to back them up, because we don't want to be out of touch with the culture. So we can disengage from the culture. I don't think the Bible teaches that. We can embrace uh, the culture. I definitely don't think the Bible teaches that. Or number three, we can transform the culture. That is, we let Christ transform the culture. That is, through evangelism and gospel transformation, that we transform the culture with the power of the Word of God and with the power of the gospel. By the way, this is where we are. This is where I think. I think there's not a problem wrong in the world that people getting saved would not solve. And so I think we're here for the gospel transformation. 
The culture doesn't mind these first two, by the way. Number one, if you do number one, you just become irrelevant. If you go full cult mode, you disengage full hermit mode, you just become irrelevant. Number, if you do number two, embrace the culture, you become unnoticeable. But if you do that third thing, transform the culture, you're a thorn in their side. Why? See, the question I have is, why, why won't they let us live out our lives how we feel God has called us to live out our lives, and, and they can do what they want to do, and we'll do what they want to do, and I'll put my God against their God any day of the week, and we'll see who wins on Mount Carmel at, as Elijah did that day. Hey, I don't mind doing that. Why don't they let, just let us live that way? I'll tell you why. Jesus told us why. John the gospel of John, Jesus said this in John chapter 3. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus. And people loved darkness rather than the light. See, that's the culture we're in. Our culture loves the darkness more than they love the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Their deeds are evil. The world, the culture's deeds are evil, so they know it, inherent within them. They know it's wrong. There is a God nature present in the world that tells us in our hearts what is right and what is wrong. They are not confused. They know it. But because their deeds are evil, they want the darkness. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. So that, this, so that his deeds may not be exposed. That's where we are in Christianity. We live in a world, Jesus said it was going to be here, that the culture we live in hates the light, the light of the gospel, the light of the word of God. They hate the light. And because they hate the light, they're going to avoid the light so they, because they don't want to be exposed. And so what they want to do is they want to shut down the light of the gospel. They want to shut down the light of Christianity. They want to shut down the light of Jesus. And that's what's happening when Peter wrote 1 Peter. The culture was mad much like today. Peter wrote this book to Christians who were in Rome. It was the epicenter of wicked culture. The danger that persistent local harassment and persecution might weaken the faith of Christians in Asia Minor led Peter to write 1 Peter. Let me tell you some things about his day. The date of the writing of the epistle is about 64 A.D., this was the time in which the persecution of the church under Nero was just beginning. Peter's writing not only to encourage and comfort, but also to prepare the believers for the persecution that's going to be just around the corner. Now, tradition tells us that Peter faced this persecution in his own life and was actually crucified upside down on a cross around AD 67. So it's just three short years after Peter writes a book to Roman Christians about persecution that he gives his own lives for the gospel's sake. When he was sentenced to be crucified, he requested that he be hung upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same master, uh, manner as Jesus was. The persecution is due to the remarkable difference that conversion to Christianity made in their lives. And get this, the negative response of their neighbors, neighbors, the recipients could no longer participate in drunken parties 
or, or the worship of idols in a temple as part of their social and business practices. This withdrawal made their neighbors, neighbors, angry, for it is an implicit condemnation of these activities and those participating in them. So it was the neighbors, the neighbors who got angry, or the culture, the culture that got angry. Now, when Peter writes this, Nero is emperor. You, you remember Nero. He burned Rome and blamed it on Christians. He arrested Christians, tortured Christians, executed Christians. He would use Christians as human torches, pouring oil on them, lighting them ablaze throughout the city so people could see at night. He would force Christians to fight wild animals and gladi- gladiators. That was Nero. Then came Domitian. Domitian legally persecuted Christians because they wouldn't bow down to Rome. And so here's what he did. He imposed heavy and high taxes on Christians only because they wouldn't worship Roman gods. And when prominent leaders led a revolt, then he would execute them. But he mainly persecuted Christians through taxes, meaning the economy turned against Christianity. And then there was Trajan. Trajan's Christians weren't hunted down, but they could be turned in by family and friends for refusing to announce their faith. And when they stood before the emperor, if they didn't recant, then they would be executed. Now, now this is the backdrop of 1 Peter. The backdrop of 1 Peter is Nero, Domitian, Trajan, and they're going to go through decades and decades of severe persecution. So when Paul writes this, Peter writes this rather, in about AD 63, AD 64, when Peter writes this, he, he, he sees it coming. God's revealed to him what's around the corner. He knows the persecution that is there and the persecution that is coming. As a matter of fact, here's what we know. They were alienated and persecuted by the government and ruling authorities of the day. They were alienated and persecuted by popular culture of the day. They were alienated and persecuted, get this, by friends and neighbors of the day. So it was the government that was against them. It was the culture that was against them. It was the people around the corner that is, was against them. And that is the backdrop for the book of 1 Peter. And hear me, we're wading into those waters right now in our world. It's not where it was, but unless something changes, it's heading that way. So what do we do about it? First Peter's going to tell us. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? First Peter chapter one. <laughs> in part A of today's sermon, I, I, I spent a long time in that, but um, look, look at first Peter chapter one, beginning in verse number one, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient, to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through 
faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith be more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, let me preach for just a moment. We know Peter's telling us Christians are not popular in the culture. Their beliefs convict and anger the world. Peter told them, though, to lean on their salvation. So today I want to preach on saved by my salvation. Because here's what Peter told them to do. Peter told them there's some things about your salvation that you're going to need to know. You're going to need to advance. You're going to need to deal with. So I want to tell you three things today that Peter would tell you on how to get your faith through the fire. Number one one, I want to tell you this, be secure in my salvation. He said, I can be secure in my salvation. Look at verse number five. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter takes these first five verses to reassure the church that even though the culture has hates us and has turned against us, that we're secure in our salvation. I don't have time when I preach through a book of the Bible, I don't have time to deal with every single verse. We'd be there. Even first Peter would take me a year to get through it. So I'm not even going to deal with with these verses today. But it's interesting, Peter talks about, as we close out the, these 12 verses, he talks about the Old Testament prophets of old who long to be part of the sal- New Testament salvation we experience, that angels in heaven look down at how God is redeeming his people and they love what God is doing. The angels love our salvation. The Old Testament prophets look towards our salvation. Why did they do that? Because they saw the security that is in our salvation. Here's some things Paul said about our salvation. First of all, said Paul said that you have been brought to, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me tell you what Paul said about your salvation. He said, first of all, when you get saved, you are a living hope. What does that mean? People think, well, if I become a Christian, it's a bunch of rules and regulations. No, it is not. It is a living daily hope for the child of God that the best blessed life is a Christ-filled life day in and day out in my life. Living hope. But not only that, he points to this time. Christianity is good for now. It's a living hope. But not only that, he points us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, meaning he's the first fruits. If he was resurrected, we'll be resurrected. So the security of my salvation is this. The biggest blessings of salvation come in this life and in the next life. It's both and, not either or. That living for Christ is a living hope, and it's the best life now. But the next life, the one I'll spend eternity in, is the best life because it comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he said, you're given an inheritance that is imperishable, kept in heaven for you. 
that you have rewards that are laid up in heaven. Jesus told us about them in Matthew chapter 6. He said, lay up your treasures in heaven. Those are reserved and they're kept in heaven for you. And there is a reward for those who live for Jesus that is imperishable, kept by God himself. Not only that, he said about your salvation, that you are guarded by God's power ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, preacher, do you think I can lose my salvation? No, you cannot. Because you're not kept by your power. You are kept by the power of God. And Jesus said this, they're in my hand, in my Father's hand. Nobody can get them out of my Father's hand. Nobody. You say, well, I thought I had to live it. No, you ought to live it. But living it doesn't keep you saved. You are guarded by the power of God of God. You say, what about those people that say they're Christians and they live like the devil? Well, listen, just because they say they're saved doesn't mean they're really saved. But if you are a child of God, you are guarded by the power of God. So here's what Peter tells them just to start off with. He said that, that listen, culture's going to get bad. The culture war is going to get bad, that you're going to have to uh, 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 live for Christ. But listen, you can do it. Why? Because you are secure in your salvation. Your salvation gives you a living daily hope. Your salvation gives you a future hope. It gives you an inheritance that cannot be touched. And you are guarded by the power of God until the end of time is over. You are in God's hands. So I can live for Jesus as boldly as I want to live for him. Why? Because I've got a safety net. And that safety net is my salvation. Y'all remember, I remember when he played in college. Y'all remember Michael Jordan playing basketball? I looked up, Michael Jordan's worth $2 billion today, $2 billion, mainly because of shoes. He owned a stake in the Charlotte Hornets, I think he's trying to sell that, and uh, if he sells his stake in the Charlotte Hornets, he would make another billion dollars, billion, cool billion. But you know what he's known for, don't you? He's known for b- Baseball. Baseball. Many of you younger kids, you may not know it, but in 1994, he retired from the NBA to play baseball. Now, he was a guy who had made nine straight all-star game appearances, averaged 30 points a game, two MVPs, three consecutive NBA championships. He was 29 years old, and he went and retired to play baseball. There's a lot of theories about why he did it. How good of a baseball player was he? According to baseball reference, Jordan finished the 1994 season with the Birmingham Barons double A with a 202 batting average, 289 on base percentage, 266 slugging percentage, which by the way is horrendous. Three home runs, 51 RBIs, 30 stolen bases, 51 walks, 114 strikeouts, and almost 400 or almost 500 appearances. He is by by no measure a good baseball player, less than average baseball player. Why would Michael Jordan, who won three NBA championships back to back to back, why would he take the risk of playing baseball? Can I tell you why? Because in 1994, MJ was already worth $100 million. So he wasn't taking a risk 
by playing basketball. You know how much money he had in the bank after he finished with baseball? Still had $100 million sitting in the bank. He could have played baseball, football, table tennis, checkers, or pickleball, whatever he wanted to play. When it was all said and done, he had the security of a $100 million bank account. And can I tell you this? Our inheritance is much larger and much grander than MJ's bank account was in 1994. Your salvation makes you more secure, more protected, because it brings with it the guardianship of God's power, and we can live for Jesus knowing that our salvation has us secure, that one day you'll be resurrected, that your salvation and inheritance are imperishable, that you personally are guarded by the power of God, and when your faith is under fire, our comfort lies in our salvation. So that tells me a couple of things today. Number one, I need to be sure that I'm saved. And that's the problem with so many people who come to church on Sunday morning. That's why you're not living for Jesus on Monday morning. You don't know that you're saved. Hey, this culture is not a time not to have that figured out. You must know that you're saved. And if you know that you're saved and Christ is in your life and heaven is your home and you're kept by the power of God and you can't lose your salvation, hear me, live boldly for Jesus in front of a lost and dying world. You're secure. How can I face this culture? I can be secure in my salvation. How can I face this culture? Here's what I need to be doing. I can be refining my relationship, number two. Look what he says in verse number seven. He says, so the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire. Refined by fire. Genuine faith is more precious than gold. Genuine faith. Boy, that word genuine there in the Greek is such a great word, and I don't have time to get in. I spent so much time studying that word genuine. It's such a great word. It means authentic and transparent. And, and it's just a great word. But here's what Peter said about your faith. Hear me, your faith, my faith. That it must be refined by fire. What does that mean? It, it means you don't know what you've got to what you've got has been tested. You don't know if your faith is genuine until your faith has been tested. Why? Suffering in this world is a way, Peter says, to refine your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes you just need to know what you have. Sometimes you need to know, would I stand up for Jesus? In the midst of persecution? I mean, ask yourself, do you stand up for Jesus when people profane his name at your work? At your school? You, you say, well, well, if I were to do that, people make fun of me. Are you willing to refine your relationship with Jesus through the fire? See, you don't really know what your relationship with Jesus is like until it gets tested. It's easy to be a peacetime Christian. Or, or it's easy to be a, can I word it this way, a, a practice Christian. The question is, will you be a Christian when the game's on? 
Well, Sunday morning's practice. Monday morning's game time. Does your faith hold up during game time? Paul, Peter said, you need persecution. Because it's through that persecution that you refine your relationship with Jesus and you find out what kind of character of faith you really have. And if you wilt in hard times, it tells you a lot about your faith. You know, you know what we call that? You've seen this expression maybe. We call that a paper tiger. In sports, you know what a paper tiger is in sports? A paper tiger is a team that looks good on paper, but when it comes to the test of a real game or season, they're all talking, no action. A paper tiger is all talk and no action. Where, where did that come from? In 1946, Chairman Mao of China popularized the term paper tiger to describe the things that seem overwhelmingly powerful but could not withstand wind and rain. He used it to describe the new atomic bomb of the American that had just dropped on uh, Japan and he described it to a journalist named Anna Strong, and he called it a paper tiger. Now, he was pretty wrong about that, but he called it a paper tiger, meaning it cannot withstand rain. It cannot withstand wind. It's just going to fold immediately. For, for example, in today's culture, most people call North Korea's army a paper tiger. Why? Well, there's 1.2 million troops in the army, which would make basic, basically make it the second largest army in the world, but they suffer from malnutrition and lack of supplies, and they not fought a real battle since the 1950s, so, so nobody really knows. I mean, it may look good on paper, but it's probably not going to make it. In, in sports, I mean, it's, it's too easy to point to the Tennessee Volunteers, right? I mean, that paper tiger that was ranked number one against Georgia, can I get an Amen. They were number one on paper, but when they, when they were put to the test, y'all forgive me for that, but I'm not real sorry, but I just want to be nice. Uh, <laughs> there are too many paper tiger Christians. Hey, you check all the boxes on Sundays, but what are you going to do when your faith is under fire? Paper tiger Christians are those that gladly follow and serve Jesus as long as everything's going their way. Paper tiger Christians are those that gladly serve Jesus as long as there's no problems in their life, as long as their finances are great, as long as Christ is popular, as long as it doesn't require sacrifice, as long as there's no commitment, as long as it doesn't interfere with what you want to do. Man, the church is full of paper tiger Christians, and Peter said that adversity, adversity would refine your relationship and make sure that you're a real tiger, not a, not a paper tiger. Has your faith been tested? What's going to happen when your faith is tested? Are you walking with God and in his word and in prayer enough? You say, preacher, what about yours? I'm worried about mine. Like when real test comes our way, all I know I can do right now is dig down as deep as I can with Christ, that I can be secure in my own salvation, that I can be in his word. Listen, I'm going to tell you, if you're not walking with Jesus in peacetime, you're not going to do it in wartime. If you're not walking with Jesus when you're not under persecution, hear me, you're not going to do it when you are under persecution. Don't be a paper tiger Christian. Take this hostility of the culture 
and use it to refine your relationship with Jesus. Number three, he said, not only can I be secure in my salvation, not only should I be refining my relationship. Number three, he said this, uh, I can be joyful in the journey. Now, this, this, um, this takes a minute because I, I really hadn't said anything uh, cheerful yet today. Look what Peter said in verse number eight. Though you've not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though not seen him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, I want you to remember this about Peter. Hang with me for a minute. Peter had seen Jesus face to face, like face to face. He'd seen him three and a half years of his life. But he's talking to people who have not seen Jesus. But get this. Peter says about the people who have not seen Jesus that they still love him and believe him. Love him and believe him. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Close your Bibles. I want you to, I want you to listen to me for the next few minutes. Close your Bible for the next minute. Give me one more minute. Here's the deal. How can I be joyful in the journey when my salvation is, uh, when the culture is coming against my Christianity? Here's the deal. If you'll focus on loving God and trusting God, you can have joy in the journey even when the journey is difficult. You know when we don't have joy in the Christian life is when we are focused on having joy. You, you never are supposed to focus on joy. You focus on Jesus, he brings joy. You love Jesus, he brings joy. You put your faith in Jesus, he brings joy. Don't focus on joy. Don't try to be happy. Try to love Jesus. But when we focus on joy or we focus on the persecution, remember Peter who sank in the boat because he saw the winds and the waves and when uh, sank in the ocean or the sea when he saw the winds and the waves. We start looking at the winds and waves, we sink. And Peter said, don't focus on joy. Don't focus on the world, the culture that doesn't like you, focus on Jesus. Love him, put your faith and trust in him, and that's what brings joy. If you get focused on the wrong thing, you'll miss your joy. Would you stand with me around the room? There's a famous story, you, you've probably heard it, but I love this story so much, 1962. President John F. Kennedy visited NASA, and the year prior, he made his famous proclamation, the United States would put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s. So he made the promise without NASA's approval. In 1962, he's walking down the hallways of NASA, and on his visit, he meets a janitor. The man is sweeping the hallway. JFK approaches him and said, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What are you doing? Now, the man's obviously a janitor. He's obviously sweeping He's got a broom in his hand. John Kennedy said, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What are you doing? Can I tell you what the man said? He said, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. He was a janitor who was focused on the right thing. Not a man who said, I'm sweeping the floor. Not a man who said, I'm cleaning up these places, a bunch of slobs around me. They won't pick up after themselves. Know what he's doing? He said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Can I tell you, when you're going through a hard time, don't focus on the broom. D don't focus on the mess. If you want to have a kingdom impact and eternal reward and be with Jesus, the Bible says this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, Isaiah 26. That's how you get joy in the journey. Saved by my own salvation, 
When our faith is under fire, it's the security of my salvation that'll get you through. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? You know, culture puts pressure on us as followers of Jesus. And sometimes it's difficult for us to live out our testimony and live out our witness because of all the things that are around us. The truth is, as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be as influenced by culture. We should be informed about what's going on around us, but we should be influenced by our relationship with Jesus. And I love these things that Pastor Joel said today. Man, be sure of your salvation. You can't withstand the storm without having firm footing in your relationship with Jesus. So make sure of that. And the other thing is have joy. We're not always happy about our circumstances. We're not always happy about what's going on around us. But the truth is joy comes from Jesus. And you get it by spending time with Him. And man, if we could conquer those things, I believe it would change our perspective entirely. And maybe today you need to spend some time in prayer just asking God to give you the joy um, that you need to get through the things that are going on in your life. Or maybe for you, you need to say, Jesus, I need a relationship with you that begins with you understanding that because of your sin, you are separated from God. And you got to be willing to admit that. You got to believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried dead in the tomb. In doing that, he took on every sin that you've ever committed, your past, your present, your future sins. Jesus took all of those on the cross. You got to believe that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And then you have to confess Him as your personal Lord and Savior, saying, I'm giving my life to you. I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for you. And if God has spoken to your heart and today you need to give your heart and life to Christ, tell God this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, paying the penalty for my sin. And right now, I ask you through the power of your Holy Spirit to come into my heart, take away my sin, be my Savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer just now, we want to say welcome to the family. We want to celebrate. Hey, you're not on this journey alone. We want to walk with you. And so, uh, if you just prayed to receive Christ, click on the link in the box that says, I commit my life to Christ. We're going to send you some stuff in the mail and, um, and connect with you to help you take next steps on your journey with Jesus. Hey, it's been awesome to be together this morning worshiping online. I can't wait for our time together each week. God bless you. Have a great week. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.